book of Joshua is one of those books that is quite difficult, I think, for people to uh, wrap their minds around. Uh, we talk about God being a God of love and a God of grace and this gracious, merciful, forgiving God. And then you come to the book of Joshua and there's a lot of uh, really what amounts to being genocide, uh, destruction. Entire peoples are completely wiped out, destroyed. And, and I think a lot of people look at that, believers and non-believers, and they go, I don't really understand how, how we put the God of the Old Testament together with the God of the New Testament. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we're not so sure we like the God of the Old Testament very much. Uh, it seems that he's, he's got a bad attitude um, at best. And so we wrestle with the teachings and the account in the book of Joshua. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is kind of address some of that together. But, but really, I'd like to look at, at one story. It's the very first battle that takes place because I think it really serves as a prototype um, for the rest of the book. And so I really want to look at the battle of Jericho and what that reveals to us about who God is and what God is, is doing in the midst of the Joshua account. And so if you've got uh, the story, we'll be on page uh, 75 here. And I want to read a little bit of this um, to you because I want us to kind of get the whole picture. It says, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with priests blowing in the trumpets. When you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpets. Have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. Those are the, the uh, instructions. That's what Joshua does. Uh, let's skip to the seventh day, which is on page 76 there, the third, uh, third paragraph down. It says, On the seventh day they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua sound, commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. And so when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything living in it, men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. And then Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, he said, go into the prostitute's house, bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Uh, it says they burned the whole city um, and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At the time, Joshua pronounced the solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is anyone who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. And so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. It's an interesting story. 
But one of the things that amazes me about this is, you know, we sing the song that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Joshua didn't do a lot of fighting uh, in this battle. It, it says that the Lord in the beginning, it says, I have given you this city and all you have to do is march around it for seven days. And guess what's going to happen? The walls are going to fall down and you will take control. This, not, this, if you go to West Point, this is not a strategy they discuss in, in military class. This is not something that's still on the books. That, you know, if you want to take over a city, this is the way you ought to do it. This is clearly God in action. And I think when we look at the book of Joshua, that's what we've got to remember. That God is the one who is doing all of this. God judges evil. And that is a truth that we have to accept. God does it. God judges evil. Now, we, we become a little bothered when it seems that people are sent out to do the or be the agents of judgment, but that's exactly what God wants the Israelites to do. God has appointed them to be the agents of judgment. If you go back a little bit in the story, it's on page 69. Uh, this was from last week's reading. But, but God sets up this entire scenario. Uh, on page 69, God is explaining to the Israelites why it is that they get that land. It is inhabited by other people. So why is it that God is giving it to them? Is it because he likes the Israelites better? The answer is no. Uh, the very last paragraph on page 69, uh, you get about two sentences in, and it says this. It says, no, it is on the account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land. But on the account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. That's how God feels about his own people. So imagine how he feels about these other nations. And, and God looks down and he says, listen, there is so much evil in this area and among these people that it needs to be eradicated. And the book of Joshua is really an account of God purifying that area for his people. Uh, and it's not just Joshua that does the judgment. I know we're flipping around a lot, but I really want to get a good survey of this. Page 83 uh, of the story uh, God is sort of recounting here, this is at the end of Joshua's life, and he's letting them know what's happened. And in one verse here, it says, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. You see, throughout the book of Joshua, it's not just Joshua that's doing the judgment. It's God that's doing the judgment. Sometimes he uses the nation of Israel. Sometimes he sends the hornet. Now, now we seem to have a less problem when God sends the hornet or when God sends plagues because we, we can clearly see that that is the hand of God working against these people, at least as recorded for us here in sacred history. But, but when Joshua drives them out, we, we really have a problem with verses like here in Jericho where it says, they put to death every man, woman, and child. And what I want us to understand is that's really not the way that God operates as a general rule. You see, God is, is a God of grace. You know, we, we like, you know, the New Testament where in 1 Timothy 2.4 it says, God 
you know, he's, he's patiently waiting because he desires that all people would be saved. And that's the same God in the Old Testament. He, he says, um, God uh, is waiting patiently uh, and, and instructs the Israelites to do the same. He wants them to give a, a chance for people to come into reconciliation with him. God wants people to be reconciled to him. God wants there to be a chance for peace between humanity and God. And now, not in the story, but in Deuteronomy, we see that there are rules of warfare. God lays out some rules for the people of Israel. He says, listen, this is how you are to make war against people that, that is righteous and gracious and, and merciful in accordance with my heart. Um, let's, let me read to you a, a little bit out of Deuteronomy. Uh, we've got it on the screen. It says, When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. That's step one. If you're going to, to attack, if you're going to have war, the very first thing you've got to do is give them a chance for peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor, shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. Again, notice who's the, the agent of victory. It's not the people of Israel, it's God. When the Lord delivers it into your hand. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in it, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. You may use the plunder uh, your Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you're to treat all the cities that are a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. You see, God's general rule is that if you're going to engage in warfare, you've got to give them a chance for peace. But the problem is, and, and here in the very last verse we get at it, the nations that live nearby proved to be uh, an exception. There was an exception to the rule for those living in the land of Canaan. Now, why is that? Well, we, we know. We know why that is. Uh, it's because there was an evil prevalent among them uh, that was so contagious and so destructive that God felt that if it was allowed to live at all, it would destroy the people of Israel. And history reveals that that's exactly what happened. God said, when you come into the land, there is idolatrous practices everywhere. And this type of idolatry is so, uh, we might say the word today, addictive and dangerous and destructive that if you allow it to just have a, a little bit of a foothold, it's going to be like a spark that starts a forest fire. And so for these nations, God says, you've got to eliminate them completely. God is judging this evil because some evil is so contagious that it just has to be destroyed completely. Uh, if you think of the history of America, we've identified some things here even on a secular level, that are so destructive that they've got to be outlawed. I mean, think of uh, illegal drugs today. At one point in time, many of them were not illegal. Uh, but as, as history has shown, some substances are so addictive and so dangerous that they have to be completely banned. Apparently, cold medicine is one of those things, too, that they're, they're getting ready to... Uh, but, but we understand why. We understand why. It's because it's being made into a substance that is very, very dangerous. So we may not like it. I may complain about it. I may stockpile it ahead of time. But um, 
you know, we, we've got to outlaw some things because they're so dangerous. Sin is that way. Some sin can be that way. It can be so dangerous and it can be so addictive that it just destroys people. Uh, if you remember last week, Jared read the account uh, from the story, and it's, it's in the book of Numbers, where um, God has said, listen, you can't be intermarrying with these Moabite women, and you can't be allowing them to come into the camp. And then in this great, um, this great show of righteous judgment, the priest goes, and as they're having this conversation about how you shall not intermarry and how you shall not allow idolatrous practices, what should happen? But some Israelite walked by with a Moabite woman and go into his tent with her, and what happens? The priest, it says, goes after them with a spear and kills both of them. Now, that's kind of a shocking story for us. Uh, we don't really think in those terms today. And I think our problem is we misunderstand that story. Is, is he being, is he being uh, a judge because they are uh, committing adultery? Is he being a judge because she's a foreigner and they're not supposed to intermarry? What's the problem here? I, I dare say the answer is neither. The answer is that, that they are permitting an idolatrous practice that's coming in that's being brought by these foreign wives. As a matter of fact, the, the, the account of Numbers, if you go back and read that, that's the predominant problem. They're afraid that they're going to bring in some idolatrous practices. Now, we don't know that that woman uh, was a single lady that they had fallen in love. That's not the story. It's very possible that she was a temple prostitute. That's, a, that's the kind of worship that they had. This, this sexually immoral worship that involves even things like child sacrifice. All of this was there and God saw the evil of it. And he said, listen, if, if you let that come in, it is going to run rampage uh, through, through you. You've got to destroy it. You've got to get rid of it. And so God says, for this sin, it's got to be judged. That's not the way that God normally acts. And I think that's what we need to understand. God's normal rules for warfare is to start with an offer of peace. But there was something so inherently dangerous with these practices that God said, you know what, you've got to get rid of all of it. If you don't, it will destroy you. And that's exactly what happened. If you fast forward, and we'll get to it later, as we read through the story, the nations of Israel fall because of idolatry. They, the idolatry of that land, they did not eradicate. And it came back and did exactly what God said it would do. It destroyed them. And so that, that's one thing I want us to sort of to think about here, is that God is the one that does the judgment of evil. Sometimes Joshua is the agent. Sometimes it's a natural force like a plague. But God's general way of dealing with humanity is to offer those terms of peace. But in this case, God said, you know what, I've weighed this. I've looked at their hearts. I know who they are. And we cannot permit that to, to exist. But even in this story of Joshua, we see that there is a, a glimmer of God's grace and that God is still gracious to the faithful. God is gracious to the faithful. We can never lose sight of that. Even in the account of, of the city of Jericho, there's one surviving family, the surviving family of Rahab. If you remember the story of Rahab, and if you've read through it this week, uh, Rahab uh, comes, to, uh, the spies come to Rahab, and she offers them a safe place. The people of the city come after her. And they say, we know that these men were here. Where, where have you hidden them? And she says, I didn't hide them. They ran away. Go look for them there. Now, she could have turned them in. She could have been rewarded. She could have been celebrated in that city for having turned in the spies of the Israelites. But she chooses a path 
of faithfulness. It is a dangerous path. It requires a lot of courage, and it is a path that God rewards. Uh, right here we see at the end of it, it says, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. And that's not even the end of the story because Rahab uh, marries into the Israelites. She becomes part of the family of God, even in the line of the uh, ancestors of King David and the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Rahab is brought in to the people of God and, and acts as a part of that family. Why is it that she does that? I mean, Joshua didn't make this deal with her. Joshua could have said, listen, spies, you know, you spoke out of turn. That's not at all what God told us to do. God said we're supposed to destroy everything. But he said, no, he said, listen, we're going to be faithful to those that are faithful to God. And that's ultimately what, what Rahab does. She is faithful, and God rewards that. Now, I know a lot of this is hard for us to understand, hard for us to think about. But, but the point of this story is not that we would feel good about God. Uh, the, the point of the book of Joshua isn't that we would have warm, fuzzy feelings about God. It's that we would understand there is something greater to God. God has glory, and God, well, the text says the word fame. I like that. Because God's glory is revealed through both the judgment and the grace. God's glory is revealed both through God's judgment and through God's grace. Now, we spend a lot of time thinking about the grace of God. But that's not the only way that God receives glory. God receives glory through His judgment as well. And why is it? It's because he understands things that we don't. I've said this about a lot of things, and I've even said it here, that I don't always understand the why, but I know the character of God as it's revealed throughout Scripture, and I know that when I do have a fuller understanding, I will appreciate the decision that he made. And I will look back at it, and I will know that it was just, and I know that it was gracious, uh, even in spite of my human capacity and, and un limitations. Uh, maybe some of you know the name Max Lucado. I imagine most of us do. He's got books about every other month out. Um, when his oldest daughter was six years old, she said to him, she said, Daddy, you know, it's okay that you're a preacher, uh, but I'd really like you to be a snow cone truck driver. That would be a lot more fun. I think my kids would agree with that. That'd be a lot more fun to be a snow cone truck driver. I mean, because you get to play the music and you get to drive around in a big truck. My son would like that. And you get to make snow cones and the kids all like you. Being a snow cone truck driver seems like an ideal vocation. Uh, but Max told his daughter no. He said, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I am weighing what you're saying. But the answer is no, I'm not going to be a snow cone truck driver and he said, because I understand a little bit more about life at this point than you do. Simple answer, but it's true. And that's a lot, I think, the way that we re relate to God. You know, we, we want these things, and we want it to turn out this way, and we want it to be, you know, have this happy ending. And God says, listen, I, that's what I would like too, but I understand a little bit more about life and reality than you do. And trust me, this decision is the best. Uh, and it's the best for the glory of God. If you look here at the very end of the account of Joshua 6, 27, it says this. It says, The Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Now, I don't know if when you read that you thought the fame was the fame of Joshua. It's not. The word fame only shows up twice in the book of Joshua. One is here, and the other is in this next slide. It's in Joshua 9, verse 9. 
And it says this, it says that this is a foreign uh, nation coming, trying to make peace. It says, your servants have come from a distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, that's God, and all that he did in Egypt. You see, the point of this is that God's fame is spreading throughout the world. What started as revelation and covenant with Abraham has now gone beyond that. And God's fame is spreading throughout the world, whether through judgment or through grace. God is being glorified. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One is from the lower story perspective, which is where all of us are. The lower story perspective is that human perspective where we just see the accounts of people, people waging war and people dying. And we don't really like this because it looks a lot like genocide. The, the upper story perspective doesn't offer much uh, a rosier picture, but it gives us some purpose. It says that this isn't genocide because people needed a place in a land. It says this is divine judgment that God is using to reveal his glory in his righteousness and his justice to the world. And from that story, we at least can see a redemptive purpose to all of it. Uh, the, the idea that, that God is in the business of really glorifying himself seems like an odd thing to say. That God is interested in his fame spreading. I know we live in a culture that is obsessed with fame. People are saying now, you, you want to be, most people want to be famous more than they want to be important or more than they want to make a contribution uh, they just want to be known. And, and that's, that seems shallow and empty to us. And we might look at this word fame and we say, is that what God wants? God just wants people to know him. And we have a hard time with that. Until we realize that God's fame is completely different from ours. Uh, you, you may forget any person in this world without a lot of consequence. Um, you may not remember a, a, a preacher's name or a Sunday school teacher's name. You may not remember that. But if you forget God, you've lost everything. You see, for God saying, I want my fame to be spread and I want my name to be known is, is an entirely gracious thing. Because the more people that know the name of the Lord, the more people that call on the name of the Lord, the more people that are saved in the name of the Lord. And so when God says, I want my fame to go throughout the world, I want my glory to spread everywhere. And whether it's by grace or whether it's by judgment, I want my name to be revealed. What God is saying is, I want more people to know so more people can come to salvation in me.